This is an Equity Bates Media podcast. As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search, match with Indeed. When I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. I will say this about investing. Everything you do learn is cumulative. What I learned at 20 is useful. Welcome to another episode of Equity Mates, a podcast where we help you learn to invest in 45 minutes or less. We break down the world of investing from beginning to dividend so that you can hopefully make some returns. My name's Bryce, and as always, I'm joined by my equity buddy, Ren. How's it going, bro? I'm very good, Bryce. Very excited for this interview. Why's that? So today we've got Matt Griffin, the co-portfolio manager for uh, AMP Capital's Australian Emerging Companies Fund. Nice. Uh, thanks for joining us, Matt. No worries, guys. Thanks for having me on the show. I guess the, the main reason I'm excited is because this is from listener demand. This is a, yes. Matt had a lot of grassroots support out there <laughs> yeah, and <that's> right. uh, <laughs> we finally managed to get him on. So we asked a little while ago who people wanted to hear from and Matt was someone that people wanted to hear from. So looking forward to, you know, picking your brain and... Uh, no pressure or anything. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. No, not, not yeah. <laughs> Matt's an expert in small caps and it's definitely something our listeners are hungry for. Mm, and I think mm. we're hungry for as well. Mm. So I'm excited for this one. Yeah big wins so i uh the goal for this is to come out with a watch list of about 10 small but look before we get into that we like to start these interviews with a game to sort of throw some topics and some themes out and to see if you think they're overrated or underrated yep do you want to play yeah definitely okay. it. so uh, the first one overrated or underrated the asx 200 yeah so i'm i'm probably not as bearish as a lot of people out there Certainly, equities have had a great run. You know, they look notionally expensive relative to history, but so does pretty much every other asset class. So if you look at equities compared to the money you're getting in the bank or from fixed interest or real estate, you know, you're still getting a pretty decent yield. Probably the other thing, to, which is interesting going to 2020, is in the US, there's actually only been four years in a US election cycle that have been down years for the S&P 500. So one of them was GFC, one of them was a tech wreck in 2000, one was, I think, 1932 coming out of the Great Depression and then there was one in 1940. So typically, if history is a guide, a US election year is good for markets. You've got people out there talking things up, promising some stimulus. And on the other side, China has a lot of money to spend, potentially stimulating the economy next year as well. So yeah, I'm probably favourably rated towards equities at the moment compared to other asset classes. Yeah, nice. Okay, so then moving to America then, overrated or underrated the NASDAQ 100? Yeah, I'll probably press by saying we focus purely on Australian small caps. I'm not an expert in the American market, but yep. 
I'd probably say, look, the comments I made for the ASX 200 probably count towards that as well. Yeah, nice. It's interesting if you look at looking at the Nasdaq specifically. I mean, we track the multiples that Aussie tech stocks trade on versus the US counterparts. And they were pretty much in line from sort of an EV to revenue perspective. In the past 12 months, the Aussie stocks have really started to outperform. So if you think about some of the businesses over there, they good cash generators, they're monopoly type businesses, trading at a decent discount to what you see on the ASX. So there's probably better opportunities for investors potentially in US tech at the moment, with the preface that maybe being that a lot of those companies are facing regulatory risk at the moment. So things like Google, Facebook, obviously being all over the news with privacy concerns, user data, are they, are they too big? Do they need to be broken up? So there are some risks over there as well. So a big topic that's come out of some of our recent live shows is leverage and uh, using leverage in your own investing, especially when you're young. So overrated or underrated leverage? Yeah, personally, I'd say overrated. I tend to be pretty risk averse from that side of things for my own personal money. And I'll just caution people to be very careful about leverage at this point in the cycle. We've obviously got interest rates at sort of record low levels. If you are using leverage, I'd say just think about what happens if there's a spike in interest rates. Can you still fund the loans? What's going to happen there? Mm. So overrated or underrated diversification? Look, I I think that's underrated. I mean, especially in small caps, that's a key part of what we try to do. Obviously, it depends on your investment goals. So if you're purely out there and you want to punt some money and potentially make a great return and you don't really mind if you lose, then sure, go and invest in one or two stocks and, and have a swing. But if you're, if you're genuinely looking to invest for the long term and generate wealth, I think in the small cap market, diversification, diversification is key. Things turn around very quickly, both business-wise and sentiment-wise that end of the market. So big gains turn into big losses very quickly. And I think having a diversified portfolio of stocks is crucial. So this next one is always a bit controversial. Overrated or underrated Bitcoin? Yeah, I'm, I'm going overrated with Bitcoin. It's, from my perspective, it's just been pure speculation over the last couple of years. I mean, there hasn't really been any real applications of Bitcoin in the real world. And it's sort of hard to see. There's a lot of hurdles to jump through in terms of regulatory side and consumer adoption. So the blockchain technology is very interesting. Webjet's a company that we invest in who's using blockchain to try and eliminate some of the costs and inefficiencies in the business. Uh, the ASX is obviously also moving to implement blockchain technology in a couple of years. So it's going to be very interesting to track those guys and see how they go over time with blockchain. But Bitcoin, I mean, the, the other thing I don't like about Bitcoin, just from a sort of environmental perspective, I don't know if you guys have heard the stats that the amount of power used mining Bitcoins is equivalent to a country of 10 million people. So it's just a environmental disaster as well. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> So to close it out, we know you're obviously heavy, heavily biased towards equities, but overrated or underrated Australian property? Yeah, I think property is obviously okay. And there's obviously a lot of sectors within that. So resi property, we've obviously seen a good bounce in um, Sydney and Melbourne recently driven by interest rate cuts. I think if you look at what drives properties, typically interest rates and the economy general and uh, job growth, wage growth, that sort of thing. The economy is a bit tough, but it doesn't seem like it's going to fall over and interest rates are probably going down in the near term. So property is probably okay. If you look at some of the sub-markets, you know, places like Perth are probably primed for a bit of a pickup with resources spend coming back. And if you look at other sectors of the property market as well, like we're pretty bullish on areas like retirement living. So companies like Ingenia, that sector is only really just getting started compared to what you've seen overseas in places like the US. Interesting. Yeah. 
You're already uh, teasing some company names, and yes. I reckon yeah, people yeah, yeah. are starting <laughs> to write them down. But we're gonna we're gonna pause on that, and we'll get to that in a second. Before we do, we like to understand people's first investment. We think it normally has a good story, and there's normally some good lessons that come out of it. So, what was the story of your first investment? Yeah, definitely. It's not it's not a great story, really. It's not one that I made a lot of money or was a good reason. But look, I guess I started getting invest started getting interested in investing back in high school. The ASX share market game was something I did with a few mates every every year and that sort of got me interested in the market and then we sort of had a chat and thought, ah, oh, maybe we'll we'll put some real money to work. And the first stock we bought was a company called Allegiance Mining, which owned a nickel mine in Tasmania they were developing. I couldn't tell you why we bought it or what the reasons <laughs> were. You know, we had no idea at the time what a P ratio was or earnings or anything like that. So someone would have got a tip or something like that. This is a hot stock. Ended up buying that at halved over the next couple of years and ended up getting taken out just before the GFC at about the price we paid for it. So broke even, which is probably not a bad thing. Yep. Um, but that sort of sparked the interest of the market uh, and, and got me going. And so when you say we, were you actually pooling your money with your mates? Yeah, or? well, I mean, I guess, you know, we were high school students at the time. There's a $500 minimum yep. parcel. So we pulled a bit of money and bought bought a few stocks. I can't, yeah, nice. can't remember what the others were, but none of them were too... Spectacular. <laughs> so, an Australian rite of passage buying a mining stock. Yeah, with- that's right. You've got to do it. You've know, <laughs> yeah. got to have some uranium stocks or something yeah, as well. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah. so I guess um, from there and as you developed your, your career in finance, have you developed a personal investing philosophy? Yeah, very much. And I guess if you look at what we do in the fund, which sort of has driven the investment style I've got, it's very much earnings drive share prices of philosophy. So if you look back through small cap returns over the past 20 years in Australia, the consistent factor that drives returns in stocks has been company earnings and actual delivery of that earnings. So valuation for us is very much a secondary input. It's harder to pick a stock's valuation. It can remain depressed or elevated for long periods of time. But by actually picking the earnings, and we think if you can go out there, do the work on a fundamental basis and pick the earnings the company is going to deliver over the next couple of years, you've got a much better chance of making money in stocks. So that's very much a style. We're out there doing deep dive research into companies, hundreds of management meetings a year, out on site visits, doing a lot of travel, just getting to the bottom of what a company's outlook is, what the earnings profile is going to look like, and then then sort of starting to wrap some valuation metrics around that um, after we've got the earnings right. Sounds much more enjoyable than being a large cap fund fund manager, that's for sure. that's the thing. And I mean, you know, small caps is a fun part of the market. Mm. The universe we've got to invest in, we sort of, we cut off at about $100 million and we don't invest in the top 100. So there's about 600 stocks in that universe. And there's there's always stories that we can find which are growing no matter what the the economic cycle is doing or what the rest of the market's doing. So something like Altium, which is now a large cap we've sold out of, but that was in stock for many years. It was a great story and... They're obviously, they designed the software which engineers used to design printed circuit boards. And that was really a story of them just gaining market share, releasing new products. And you're looking at an electronics market which fluctuates up and down every couple, every year or two, but they were able to consistently grow. And those are the kind of stories we're trying to uncover at that end of the market. So it does make for interesting investing. So you said there's, what, 600-odd small caps in yeah, yeah. the Australian market. And what in globally, what, about 4,500 or thereabouts? Something like that. That sounds about right, yeah. <laughs> Why yeah. the focus on Australia only? It's interesting. I mean, we've, we've got a team of three people, so we're quite small and nimble, and that's enough of a universe for us to tackle. And mm-hmm. what, what you find in Australia small caps is it's one area of the market where active management really does add value. So, again, again, looking back 20 years since 2000, 
the small ordinaries index in Australia is, is up around 180% in that period, whereas the median manager, so the middle of the road small cap managers is up 730%. And that's the opportunity from actually getting out there. I mean, this end of the market, you've typically only got one or two sell-side analysts writing research on a stock versus large cap where there's maybe 10 or 15 people. So it's easier for us to go out there, find ideas that people aren't looking at, find angles, use their industry contacts and networks and actually get good insight in companies. In terms of global, like I struggle to see what advantage a manager sitting in Australia has relative to guys in the US and actually on the ground over there. So I think to be a successful global manager, you've either got to have a big network of people around the world doing that sort of work, or you've got to be doing something very different. So at AMP, we've got a, a global equities team who does have people around the world, but they have a much longer time horizon. So they invest in a 10-year horizon, um, ignoring all the short-term noise. So just running sort of a general small cap fund like we do in Australia on a global basis, I think we'd probably struggle doing that just given the opportunity set and the inability to actually get out and just visit that many companies. I'm interested in your research process. You said there you do hundreds of management meetings a year and you have to sort of know the industry. I mean, 600 stocks is still a lot of stocks if you're trying to know them all intimately and know what their future looks like. So what, and you've only got a team of three. So what does that process look like? How do you whittle down that world of 600 into a manageable, researchable number? Yeah, it's interesting. I mean, we've got a few areas of generating ideas, a few methods. So one of them, we actually, we do run filters over our universe. They filter stocks for things that fit our investment process. So earnings delivery and quality are are the two sort of main factors. That brings that universe of 600 down to about 70, which sort of throws up ideas. And we we look at that list once a week and say, well, are there any stocks in this 70, which we should be looking at? The other thing, the three of us, I mean, we will be on the road more than half the time. So we're out seeing management in different, different parts of the world, doing site visits. It's really just about getting in front of companies, assessing whether it's a good idea and if it is, then doing more work. So how many mines do you visit every year? Yeah, <laughs> yeah it's interesting. Like I, I, I sort of do the resources stuff. So, I mean, I, I was in Kalgoorlie a couple of weeks ago going down a few gold mines. I really enjoy that. It's a great it's a great way to see different parts of the country, which you'd never see in really remote areas. But yeah, I enjoy the mining side. So it's every couple of months I'll be out on a mine site somewhere. So small caps is something that is quite, I guess, advantageous to people of our age and yep. sort of level of investing journey. But we don't have the opportunity, unfortunately, to be on the road 150 days of the year yeah, yeah. <laughs> going out there and, <laughs> yet, actu- actually, yet. <laughs> yet, and actually doing that sort of research ourselves. If you were in our position or the position of our listeners, how would you go about, I guess, finding adequate information on these companies to then make sort of justified arguments as to why to buy? Because as you said, research for the big caps, there's hundreds mm. of people doing it. It's quite difficult sometimes to find. Yeah, it is. I mean, the first thing I'd probably say is small caps, you have people like us doing the work and providing that sort of service. So, Do you want to give everyone your mobile number? I'll probably give you a plug. (laughs) I'll give our fund a plug and other small cap managers saying that small caps do outperform quite substantially both the small cap index, the large cap index, large cap managers, like that's been proven over time. So if you are out there wanting to get small cap exposure and don't really necessarily have the time or the, the energy to do the work, Giving, the, giving your money to a manager is actually quite a good way of, of capturing that effect. Mm. If you're interested in getting into small caps yourself, just Googling is actually a great way of finding out information about companies. I mean, there's a lot of information companies put up now in terms of investor presentations to get a sense of the strategy. Mm. I'd say one of the things you should definitely do is go and read through annual reports. You'd be amazed at how much information you can find in the notes of the reports. And just going back through the years and seeing how the strategies evolved, how the people have evolved, 
and then just Googling various people, projects, companies, competitors, it's you can get all sorts of information out there. You've just got to dig for it. And you said you go and talk to a lot of the companies themselves and the management teams. Yep. And we understand, I guess, in terms of uh, like quality of business management is very important. What are some key characteristics, I guess, you look for in a management team? Yeah, absolutely. And I think, you know, we're doing the stats, but I think this year we've seen about 450 companies Wow, between the three of us. So we do see a lot and there's a huge cross-section. And obviously management is top of the list when everyone, everyone asks you, you know, what's the main thing you look for investing in stock? It's very hard to assess management after one meeting. You get people who are very good at presenting um, and win people over that way without necessarily having much substance behind that. So that is something that we build up over time, the knowledge of the company. And, you know, the great thing is I carry around my, around my iPad everywhere and that's got thousands of notes in there. So every time I meet a company, I'll be going back through my previous meeting notes and looking looking back and saying, well, what are they promised back then? Have they actually delivered? Are they just lying to me? Have they been conservative? We generally want managers who under-promise and over-deliver. Mm. So you want to set expectations fairly low and be able to beat them. That gets rewarded really well in the market. In terms of characteristics, one of the big things in small caps is sort of founder-led companies. You want people who've got skin in the game and are really aligned to shareholders. So we look at incentive programs. I mean, that's another thing your listeners can look through is go to the annual report, read through the remuneration reports and see how bonuses are set for management. A good management team should have bonuses set based on shareholder return expectations versus market EPS sort of targets rather than just a straight profit measure which they can manipulate through yeah. doing acquisitions or yeah. writing stuff off. So um, that's probably one of the main things. You know, definitely we try to get deeper into the teams as well. So not just meeting the CEO and CFO but actually going on site, who's the next level of management down, what are they like, how long have they been around, what sort of things like staff turnover, employee engagement metrics. So we, we try to go pretty deep on the people side of things. Yeah, fascinating. Yeah, that is interesting. Do you, do you find companies are generally pretty open uh, and, you know, you, you can speak to sort of third level down management? Yeah, and it's, you know, they, they're getting better at that. Like more companies are doing annual investor days where you can, you can interact with those people. And typically when they do site visits, it's, it's an next layer of management on site. You tend to get a bit sceptical of management teams that don't let you do that, who just solely focus your attention on the CEO. Mm. That is a bit of a red flag, but it is it is getting better. That level of access and disclosure is generally getting better at the smaller end. Nice. We've got to start going to some of those investor days. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> I need to have more sick days. Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so um, you, you mentioned there that uh, small cap managers have crushed the small cap index. Yep. Um, but you, did, you wrote um, recently that small caps in general have underperformed since the JFC. Why do you think that is? Yeah, it's interesting. And I'll probably clarify that by saying that it's, it's small cap earnings I'm talking about. So small cap since the GFC, the small cap index has actually more than doubled once you factor in dividends. So the stock performance in general has actually been pretty good over the past 10 years. The area where they've underperformed has been the earnings. So if you go through the small cap index, add up the profit that every stock in the index makes at the GFC and now, there's been very little change over that period. So we've gone more than 10 years without them actually generating a high level of earnings, which is actually quite an amazing um, stat given it's been that, that period of time. There's been a few factors driving that. So the first one really was 2012, 2013 was the end of the mining CapEx boom. So all the big iron ore and all the gas projects rolled off. There was a big weighting of small caps to mining services companies, resources companies. That was a big crash then. And I guess what we've seen in recent years, we've had 
sort of sluggish domestic economy. We've had some of the old school business models in terms of retailers and media getting disrupted by digital players. And so their profits have been falling because they haven't adapted quickly enough. And the third thing we've seen is that the high growth companies, the tech guys and the companies trading on big multiples have used this as an opportunity to reinvest in their business. So they're saying, well, investors at the moment don't really care about profit as long as we can show good top line growth. Let's go out there, let's hire more more marketing people, more R&D people, invest in products and sales and really try to capture market share and worry about profitability maybe in three to five years' time. So that has all affected the actual level of earnings that the small cap market's given you overall. I guess what we're trying to do and what we're saying is that there's always a subset of the market which is growing very strongly and that's what we're trying to gain exposure to. So 40 to 50 stocks in the fund typically and we're trying to get those companies which are growing earnings and are showing good good signs of delivery. So we did a couple of live shows recently and gold was a, a, bit, a big feature of, uh, well, I guess interest from the audience. Australia has a fair few gold miners that sm- fall in the small cap space. How do you think about uh, investing in gold miners versus actually gold itself? Yeah, yeah, it's, it's a good one. Gold's very topical, obviously, and it always kind of is. It's a, it's a great subject. You know, my personal view is everyone should have some gold in their portfolio especially sort of in the current uncertain macro environment. From our perspective as fundamental stock pickers who have access to management, ability to go out and site and visit mines, we feel like we should be able to do better than just the commodity physical gold return. So we leave commodity investing alone. We invest in stocks. We've got three or four gold stocks in the portfolio at the moment. And what we're looking for is areas of upside that the market might not be factoring in. So obviously every gold stock is going to have the same or not the same leverage, but they'll all have leverage to the gold price. We're looking for things like, are there future production upgrades coming through new mining areas? Is a good exploration ground? Are they doing things on the cost base? Is there potential for mergers and acquisitions, opportunities or capital management? So things which the market's not necessarily on, which will drive the share price higher. Mm. And sort of by going through our research process and doing that, we're able to sort of find these opportunities mm rather than just saying, we like gold, we're taking a view on that, we're going to own an ETF or or own physical gold. If we move from your work at AMP during the day to your personal uh, investing portfolio, how do you think about incorporating small caps into that side of your investing? Yeah, it's it's a it's an interesting question and um, I actually don't do any personal investing myself anymore. Oh, wow. What I did when I joined AMP was sell all my personal stocks and put all my money in the fund. So, but not AMP itself? No, not, not the AMP <laughs> itself. Um, it's, all in, it's all in the fund that we manage. Look, I, we're a very small part of AMP, so I don't want to express any sort of opinion on what the AMP share price is going to do. That's not my area of expertise. Yeah. Yeah. It's not a small cap. No, that's the thing. Could it's, be. it's a large cap. <laughs> and so, so what I've what I've done is said I want to I want to be aligned with investors in the fund. I want to actually manage my own money because I th- I think we've got a good process. The returns have been good in the fund, and we can continue to do that. So, rather than potentially have conflicts of interest with our investors, and I don't want to be buying different stocks in the fund or having any issues there. I've I've basically just stopped investing personally. All my money's in the fund, fully aligned with everyone. So, and it's probably it's probably a good thing actually because we got a team of people out there doing proper research rather than punching around a few yeah. market cap stocks, which is what I used to do and had very mixed success. Yeah, I, yeah. so. I, I really like I really like that attitude, you know, the fact that you're all in on the fund and yeah. you your success or failure is your investor's success or failure. Skin in the it, game. 
Yeah, is that well, is, well that's that's what we ask of management teams. We invest in you, know, we want skin in the game. Mm, and mm. that's what investors should be asking of fund managers as well. Is that something that, you know, everyday people like Bryce and I can see, uh, you know, which fund managers do have skin in the game and which don't? Like is that something that you guys make public or put it in no, your No, it it isn't typically. I mean, you'll get managers talking about that in the press and stuff like that, but I don't yeah, for us it's not a it's not a public measure. There are companies who have or fund managers who have policies on their website where staff aren't allowed to invest in anything other than funds. Um, and there's a few examples that I think VGR Partners is one that I came across recently where I saw that all their staff have to invest in their own funds. So something like that's probably a good sign. But typically a lot of the small cap um, boutique managers who've started up their own funds are big investors in their own funds. But you do get a lot of guys out there sort of investing on the side as well. So it is something you need to be careful of. Mm. Yeah, Matt, so one thing that we often get questions about is how to sell when to sell. And we know that when small caps beat market expectation, great share price improvement jumps. But equally, if they disappoint the market, they get slammed. How do you think about that if you've chosen a stock that I guess doesn't meet expectation and it gets hammered? Do you, how do you think about the sell process? Yeah. And small caps is a very volatile part of the market. So you're right. Things, things can go from being market darlings to being absolutely hated very quickly. Mm depending on a single result. Mm. Interesting thing about small caps and the market in general is that earnings are serially correlated. So typically companies which upgrade will continue upgrading. And we've actually done some research which shows that a company which has an earnings downgrade will typically go on to downgrade three and a half times on average. So our approach is we aren't value managers. We're not there trying to pick the bottom in stocks and hang around in stuff that looks very cheap if we can't see any earnings support coming through. So if we own a stock which downgrades earnings, and we, we do have some of those in the portfolio, the first reaction is to sell it because on average, there are more, there are more downgrades coming and that stock will go down further. Yeah, right. There are cases where we think, you know, more than that downgrades may factor into the share price or there are other catalysts coming up we will hold. But you'd probably say maybe 60 70% of the time we're selling that stock on the day. Is that research specific to small caps? Look, for, it is specific to small caps, but I don't see any reason why it wouldn't be the same in large caps or mm. other parts of the market. And did you do it the other side as well? If there's an upgrade, do they genuinely continue yeah. for yeah. X period of time they continue. Well? So there, there's a thing we call the earnings cycle, which a company goes through. And typically you have a number of upgrades, the market re-rates the stock, the valuation goes up, it becomes a market darling. And as soon as you have that first earnings downgrade, it absolutely gets smashed and people move out. Then you get to the segment of the market, which is a value trap. So it's something which has had earnings weakness. The stock looks very cheap, but it's hard to pin a valuation on a stock which still has declining earnings. So a good example is some of the old world media stocks, the TV and radio stocks, where they've looked cheap for years um, and people have been trying to pick the bottom when they're going to turn around, but they've continued getting disrupted by Google and other you know, social media and digital marketing um, channels. And the stock price have kept falling because earnings haven't been able to find a base. So the P ratio might be eight times but and it stays that level, but the earnings keep falling, so the stock price will keep falling. So we we don't try to pick those turning points. It's very hard to do. What we'll typically try to do is wait for signs of earnings stabilisation to come through before getting involved in a the stock. There are, there, there are exceptions, but that's typically the process. A2 Milk reminds me of the company that just kept giving earnings upgrades for yeah, like yeah, exactly. years. I'm yeah, like, yeah. come on. <laughs> that's the one. And I mean, and, and that's on the flip side, companies can hold very high valuations yeah. as long as they're delivering on earnings. I mean, A2 has looked expensive for years mm, mm. and it's 
gone from a, a dollar to I wouldn't even know where to say because it's a large cap, but probably fifteen bucks. Um, mm-hmm. And it's stayed in a very high P multiple, but it's the earnings have grown into that multiple over time. I just want to quickly, sorry, Ren, if you're about to ask something, but pick up on something there. So once it falls out of the bracket of small caps, yep. do you just stop looking at it completely? Or no, we like- can. So stocks in the top 100 are outside of the universe. So essentially that's, we're saying when it gets to that part of the market, it starts to pick up more coverage. It gets more well-known. Some of those information opportunities um, drop away. Uh, so we we can hold on to things in that space. You know, we do have one or two stocks which have gone to the top 100. We still think are good investments. Mm-hmm. But we're not making new investments into the top 100. And yeah. typically over time, we will recycle out those ideas and, and bring in more small caps. Yeah, right. Yeah. So by the sounds of it, some valuation metrics which people sort of cling to are less important, things like PE ratio and stuff like that. And- some other metrics, you know, like earnings growth, return on equity, seem to be more important. Is that seem to be correct? Yeah, I mean, at the at the end of the day, we do wrap evaluation around things. So, we set an earnings based valuation, and the main component of that is getting the earnings right. So, if we if we look at a company, we we see that our earnings estimates are way below where the rest of the market is. We won't bother looking at it because we think there's a downgrade coming. That stock will probably go down. If we are comfortable with the company's earnings, we'll then start to look at, well, how should we value this company? What's an appropriate method? Where does it compare to its peers? How are we looking on valuation metrics for the next couple of years? So typically, PE is the main one we look at. It is a simple measure. It is easy to compare across multiple companies. And especially when you're looking at the number of stocks we are, it's quite an easy metric to apply. Obviously, it doesn't always work. Um, you need to be cognizant of companies with high debt loads or plenty of cash in the balance sheet, which might be distorting that P ratio. Mm-hmm. So sometimes EV to EBITDA sort of measures are better. Uh, and we tend to steer clear from DCF type valuations just because, you know, theoretically, I went to the uni and, and DCF's academically the best way to do things <laughs> because it's more rigorous and it's a future value of cash flows. But there are a lot of assumptions which go into that. You know, the assumptions going to the discount rate, the beta, the risk-free rate, all that sort of thing are very subjective. Mm-hmm. And if you like a stock or you don't like a stock, you can make the DCF be whatever you want. So it's very self-fulfilling. The one exception is mining companies where you've got a fixed life asset. So you're modelling out five years of cash flow before the mine closes. You need to do that on a DCF basis. Yeah, yeah. Um, I think what we try to do there, though, is just keep the assumptions very consistent across all the companies. So, whereas we're not trying to, we're not going to be able to pick a, a DCF valuation perfectly, but we use it almost as a ranking tool to say, well, of these five gold miners, which ones have the most upside, and we'll we'll invest in those. So you you said there that you project out earnings, and I imagine there's a lot of science in getting that right. How far out are you looking and are you looking to project? The way we've approached the valuation side, so we typically look for a two-year earnings forecast um, and then wrap a valuation metric around that two-year number. What we found is that the market has become increasingly short-term focused. So a lot of the sort of the quant money, the high-frequency traders, those sort of guys are looking at very short-term data points. So what's the next result? And that part of the market's been largely arbitraged away. And looking long-term, looking five years out for small caps is just too long, just given a lot of these companies quite early in their life cycle. There's a lot that can change. So it's very hard to get an accurate feel of earnings for five years. So we sort of pick two years as a good middle ground. It gives us enough of a medium-term view without having to make overly heroic assumptions on what future strategy is going to be. I imagine even two years out, like it can, it would be a challenge even just to get oh, that. It, it yeah. absolutely is. Yeah. It absolutely is. And, and the one thing we can almost guarantee is that earnings number two years is going to be wrong. 
what we try to do is we incorporate a risk factor into our process. So we look at that two-year number and we go, well, how much risk is around this number? What's the distribution of returns likely to be like? So we look at things like a mining company is going to have much higher risk because you're exposed to commodity price. So if the gold price goes up or down 500 bucks, that's going to have a huge effect on earnings. Whereas a tech company, for instance, where you've probably got less external factors influencing your company, it's more internally driven. You can probably wrap a tighter range around a particular sales number, but probably earnings as well. So we will have high weights in stocks generally where we have high confidence in the earnings number two years out. Stocks where we have less confidence, we either won't invest or we will take a smaller weight for risk management purposes. Now, this is a question without notice, so feel feel free to not have an sure. answer ready. <laughs> is there any companies that you're looking at at the moment where you're projecting their earnings out two years that you think the market has just got completely wrong? Yeah, there's a few actually. And um, actually, I mean, one of the things I mentioned before was a lot of these tech companies reinvesting in growth and spending time with a few of these companies. There are a few guys, a few guys in that bucket where they're going to reinvest heavily over the next couple of years. And the market's got these companies turning around, making a profit in two years' time, and we think they'll just continue making losses. The issue for investors to work out is, is that going to matter? Because if these if the investment works out, they grow their sales, the top line grows, there's international opportunities um, for expansion. Potentially, the bottom line doesn't matter in these companies, and you can have big earnings downgrades, but as long as the top line's growing, you're delivering on the strategy, people will keep backing that. So that's that's a bit of a conundrum at the moment. But look, there are stocks in the fund where we see upside to earnings. So a good example is one of our biggest positions has been Austal. Um, obviously a big defence contractor for the US Navy in terms of shipbuilding also in the ferry market. And the market's effectively got earnings kind of flatlining from this year for the next couple of years. We actually see potentially 20, 30% upside. Given we've actually, we've I went to Asia earlier in the year, visited a few of their shipyards, we're seeing margin improvement coming through in a lot of the vessels they're building now, and I don't think that's captured by the market. Wow. So we've just got to get to some defence shipyards. Yeah. <laughs> so Matt, one other thing that I read uh, that you'd done some research on uh, was around companies moving their reporting dates, Yeah, yeah. which I, I found fascinating because it's not something that I ever think as, is a meaningful indicator. So yeah. can you can you explain what the research found? Yeah, th- this is an interesting one. And um, the kind of the genesis of this idea was last year during reporting season, one of the companies we invested in came out and said, oh, we were planning on releasing our results on, I think it was the 10th of August, and now it's going to be on the 30th of August, right at the end of the month. And we looked at each other and said, oh, shit, this probably isn't good. Like, And, and that got us – and it wasn't good. It was actually a downgrade and we, we sold out of the company. But it got us thinking that is there a systematic approach you can take to this and is there a blanket rule to say the companies which delay their results are generally worse quality and companies which report early generally do better? So – we actually went back over five years of reporting season data on 600 companies and we looked for deviations in when companies reported versus when they usually do. We actually found two things. So the first one is companies that report earlier in the month of February or August actually outperform companies which report later in the month. And that's quite intuitive because generally companies which have their accounts out earlier, you, can, you probably have better systems and processes. You're more on top of what's going on in the business so that, that kind of makes sense and, and they, that outperformed by sort of 1%. So it's not a huge amount, but it does add up over time and that's kind of on average as well. The, the other interesting one is companies which deviate significantly from when they previously report. So if they delay their results by more than a week, they will typically underperform by 2%. And if they bring their results forward by more than a week, they will outperform by 
And a lot of the time there's perfectly innocent reasons for this happening. There might be an integration from an acquisition going on or change in order or something like that. But we do find that what we kind of think intuitively about the quality of companies and when they report does actually translate into returns. So uh, AMP going to start a quant fund that just well, algorithmically trades that? <laughs> yeah, we, there is a quant fund at AMP, and I've spoken to our guys about that, and it is actually something they've been tracking previously as well. So, you know, it's it's the returns in that are sort of too small for us to worry about, and, and we focus on bigger things. But it is it's kind of interesting. It's a good sort of indicator about um, potentially what it means if a company's delaying or bringing forward results. Well, if it's too if it's too small for AMP, I'm sure there's someone out there that is gonna it's gonna be right the right size for. So, like, like all good things in the market, when someone's onto a good thing, it'll get arbitraged away. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, yeah. Well, we'll delay releasing this episode, and we'll start an equity mates fund. To, uh... <laughs> so, Matt, we always like to finish uh, our episodes with the same three questions. So, we may as well kick straight into it. Are there any must read books, investing or otherwise, that you would uh, recommend? Yeah. Um, there's plenty out there and, and obviously there's a huge body of investing research and many different styles and all that. I think the one that I read pretty recently, which kind of resonated well with me, more from a life lessons and a personal kind of approach was Ray Dalio's Principles book. Yep. And the two things I really got out of that was sort of the, the concept of radical honesty that he talks about, just being completely open with, and you know, it's, it's good with the team that we work in and we sort of chat to each other and there'll be things where we'll get questioned, we, we don't know about a stock, so we'll go and find it out rather than people trying to make themselves look good and, mm, and trying mm. to pretend you know everything. Mm. The second point there that came out of that book is really just the concept of focusing on your strengths. So most people out there focus on their weaknesses and try to develop that, whereas what you should actually be doing is looking at what you're best at, focusing on that, and then building people around you who are good at your weaknesses and really complementing each other as a team. So I think that was definitely worth worth reading. Yeah, nice. Yeah. Nice. Uh, so second one, what is your go-to source for investing information? Yeah, so in the, in the fund we use a, an application called Factset. So it's similar to Bloomberg and Iris and all these sort of things. Um, it, it's great in terms of all the market data we get, all access to, to broker reports, um, all that sort of thing. So for your listeners, it's probably a bit pricey and a bit over the top. Bloomberg oh, terminal. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, I don't know if people want to spend 30, 30 or 40 grand on a Bloomberg terminal. <laughs> what I would say is, I mean, there's, there's just on the company's website, you know, they, they put up all sorts of material, read through annual reports, read through releases. There's plenty of detail you can get on Google, various stock forums, things like the podcast you guys are doing. So there's plenty of material out there. You just need to sort of dig for it. And finally, uh, going back to the time where you're at high school playing share market game with your yeah, mates yeah. and uh, buying gold miners. Um, what advice would you give to yourself back then? Yeah, that's an interesting one. I mean, if we, if I look back at, sort of I've been in the market investing now for 12 years as a fund manager, where I've lost money in the fund over that time is where I've deviated from the process. So I would just say stay true to what you know, what your process is, what works, and don't try to deviate too much away from that. Don't try to get greedy on, you know, potentially hot ideas or things like that where they don't fit what you typically invest in. The other thing I'd probably say to my younger self is don't be afraid to take a risk. At a younger age, you've got your whole working life ahead of you, so you can allocate more to um, high-risk parts of the market like small caps, um, potentially take some risks and try to set yourself up nicely. And if you, if you have some losses, you've got plenty of time before you retire to sort of pull yourself out of it. Nice. Well, thanks for your time, Matt. Really enjoyed you coming on the show. Before we say farewell, if anyone wants more information on yourself or your fund, 
how do they find it? And I guess is how can we get access to the fund? Yeah, absolutely. So the AMP Capital Emerging Companies Fund, just search for that on Google, it'll come to the website. There's a bunch of material on there, a, a PDS and a contact, a contact details, so you can get in touch that way. We are in the process of expanding our retail offering. So there is a fund available. At the moment, you'll need to go through a financial planner and it's on the net wealth platform. Okay. But potentially in the future, we're looking at doing a sort of direct investment type model to make it easier for retail investors to access. Nice. Yeah. Well, let us know. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, thanks for your time. Really appreciate Excellent. it. Um, thanks, guys. Great to be on the show. We haven't uh, spoken much about small caps lately, so it's kind yeah. of refreshing to have these sort of conversations. So I no, appreciate it. Hopefully it was interesting. It was. Thanks. <laughs> Thank you. Equity mates and the people appearing in this program may have positions in the companies mentioned. This is general advice only. Please speak to a financial professional to understand how it may pertain to your individual situation. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM.